G'day, everyone, and welcome to our podcast on the title, Are Your Cybersecurity Walls Future-Proof? Let me start our podcast with this question. Are walls just enough anymore? Well, let's take a trip back into history to take a lesson for some pretty impressive walls. The year is 539 BCE, and we are in ancient Babylon. By all accounts, an impressive city, and possibly one of the first to reach a population of above 200,000 inhabitants. But this was a year of disaster for them. Babylon had some hugely impressive walls. Greek historian Herodotus specifically praised the double walls, which he said were 90 kilometres long, 24 metres thick, and 97 metres high, and buttressed with defence towers. He may have exaggerated a little, but other ancient writers also noted the magnificence of the walls. The city sat astride the Euphrates River, which supplied a moat from 20 to 80 metres wide. They had enough food and water to outlast any sieging army. To those of the ancient world, Babylon appeared to be invincible. But something was to happen, and it was going to happen overnight. It started with what Herodotus says was a festival in Babylon on the night the city fell. Cyrus the Great of the Persian Empire found a vulnerability he, he could exploit, and he was motivated. He diverted the Euphrates River so that the moats surrounding Babylon would lower enough to allow his troops to traverse it. His army walked through the riverbed, past towering walls, and entered through what Herodotus called the little gates that led down to the river, gates that were left open for the festival. Reportedly, no one in the inner parts of the city had known the outer part of the city had already fallen. The Nabonidus Chronicle in the British Museum confirms that the army of Cyrus entered Babylon without battle. Overnight, the city fell. The Babylonians placed a lot of faith in their walls and moat and believed that they were safe given all the effort that went into those walls. But their attackers were motivated and they saw a hole in their defences that could be exploited. An unlikely scenario made the walls ineffective. So how do you feel about your cybersecurity walls? We find a certain comfort in walls and the security they provide. Alice Maynell, a poet, said, A wall is a safeguard of simplicity. With all the complexity associated with security solutions, that quote might not seem apt. But with today's level of attack intensity and motivated attackers, a lot of security solutions have just become part of a baseline model. They have become the simple part of a security strategy. They are tested, repeatable, and a known factor. The issue is they are also known factor to criminals, and they will tunnel under, climb over, or just barrel through some walls. Putting aside known vulnerabilities and future technology for now, we will get into that. Just think of the holes end-of-life systems are creating in your wall. With the pandemic contributing to chip and resource shortages, new hardware can be difficult to come by. Some have been a little lax in keeping on top of end-of-life systems, which can be an issue when it comes to compliance with either PCI DSS 3.2.1 or version 4, let alone any other compliance standards. For example, in PCI DSS version 4, requirement 12.3.4 specifically calls out end-of-life systems, including a plan approved by senior management to remediate outdated technology 
including those for which vendors have announced end-of-life plans. When something becomes end-of-life, they become orders of magnitude more vulnerable to security threats because they can no longer be patched and updated. It opens up so many holes in your wall. That being said and done, like Cyrus the Great, motivated bad actors will find a way through your wall no matter how tough, tough your wall looks. If you don't believe me, let's just take a look at some figures around vulnerabilities from 2023 and then a little into the future of things to come. Herodotus said little gates were open that allowed an invading army in. As of October 31, 2023, there are 229,277 known vulnerabilities in NIST's National Vulnerability Database, or little gates and defences out there. Here is where an issue arises when you are looking at PCI compliance with either version 3.2.1 or version 4. You need passing external vulnerability scans with nothing scoring higher than a CVSS score of 4.0. But 97% of all vulnerabilities are 4.0 or higher, with an average weighted score of 7.6. So there's a pretty good chance that if a vulnerability is found, it will impact your PCI compliance unless remediated and retested. The top four vulnerability categories include denial of service, code execution, overflow, cross-site scripting. Code execution consistently shows the largest growth in numbers. From 2016 to 2017, the number of vulnerabilities over doubled from year to year, and it's been an ever-increasing number ever since. If you think the number of holes opening up in an average wall are ever-increasing, wait until you wrap your mind around quantum computing. A little while back, I thought I would put on my thinking cap and try to understand the science behind quantum computing. You will come across terms like qubit and superposition, at which point the thinking cap is already starting to feel the strain. Qubits can be explained in somewhat easier terms. Just like a basic unit of traditional computing is a binary bit, a qubit or quantum bit is a unit of information in quantum computing. That's as bad as easy as it gets when trying to understand the rest of quantum computing. When it comes to qubits, the next word you will hear in any sentence is superposition, or the ability of quantum systems to be in multiple states at the same time until it's measured. It's referred to as a phenomena because when you measure the energy of a superposition, it collapses into one state with a certain probability. Whilst there is maths of the probability of a measured state occurring, why it works remains somewhat unknown. If you know the answer, there is probably a Nobel Prize in it for you. It's referred to as the measurement problem, how a superposition of many possible values becomes a single measured value. There is a lot more to how quantum computing works apart from superposition, including interference and entanglement. But what it comes down to is this. There are applications for which quantum computing provides exponential speedups, and cybersecurity is one of them. So what does this mean in the real world, and why do I refer to it as the battering ram of the future? When you take into consideration the processing efficiency of a quantum computer, you'll begin to see its impacts in cybersecurity. For example, IBM postulated if you wanted to find one item in a list of one trillion, and each item took one microsecond to check, 
it would take a classic computer about a week to find the item and a quantum computer about a second. Such speeds would certainly have impacts in areas of random number generation fundamental to cryptography, but it could also have controversial applications such as the breaking of public key cryptography. Right now, qubits are inherently unstable because of interference that can be caused by internal and external factors, such as magnetic fields, temperature, or by interactions between the qubits themselves. Information can degrade in microseconds, and the higher the number of qubits, the higher the noise requiring complex error correction approaches. But if you could generate around four to 6,000 error-free qubits it would take seconds to defeat current public key cryptography. However, to get four to 6,000 clean qubits, it would require around 1 million of today's noisier qubits. Today's quantum computers sit around 100 qubits, and it could even be more than that by now. But IBM and Google have set themselves on a path to achieve 1 million qubits by 2030. So whilst there is still some time to pioneer post-quantum cryptography and the likes of NIST are working on it, you would have to allow for that time frame to be compressed if major developments come through earlier than expected. To explain how quantum computers work may seem like you need a physics degree, but imagining the possibilities and impact to cybersecurity does not. When it comes to cybersecurity walls, you can see why I refer to them as the battering ram of the future. So what do we do? Ancient Babylon is just a pile of ruins today. But if we go back to that fateful night in 539 BCE, what could have been done differently? What if there were sentries on the towers? What if there were soldiers monitoring the moat and posted at the gates? What if there were scouts out constantly patrolling the surrounding land? What if defences weren't lowered for the festival? Could they have survived that night? A breach could equally devastate your business today if you aren't prepared. So what lessons could we apply from history? Well, I think Bruce Shiner summed it up well. You can't defend, you can't prevent. The only thing you can do is detect and respond. We aren't saying throw out your protection mechanisms, but we are advocating more emphasis on detection and response. Some time back, he wrote an article on the future of incident response, and this is what he had to say. At a tactical level, security is both a product and a process. Really, it's a combination of people, processes, and technology. What changes are the ratios. Protection systems are almost technology with some assistance from people and processes. Detection requires more or less equal proportions of people, processes, and technology. Response is mostly done by people, with critical assistance from process and technology. Incident response needs people because successful IR requires thinking. Despite the time since that article was written, it is applicable more than ever before. An approach with greater focus on detection and response requires an investment in people. The technology you have should support your people, not replace them. And there should be a steady stream of training and exercises in the mix. That'll include the likes of tabletop exercises and red team versus blue team events, or even fire drills. When it comes to red team versus blue team exercises, there's nothing like fostering a little healthy competition among staff 
to really test out your security solution as a whole. But there are other aspects of cybersecurity that will help you put some focus on detection and response, and one of those areas is understanding your attack surface. As qualified security assessors, we become very good at identifying the scope of a card data environment, or CDE, including any connectivity to a CDE. If you look at PCI DSS 4.0, Section 4, Scope of PCI DSS Requirements, you'll see what I mean. Apart from system components, people and processes that store, process and transmit cardholder data, we look at things that have unrestricted connectivity to system components, or even anything that could impact the security of the CDE. It's that same level of scrutiny that needs to exist when identifying your attack surface. Everything we deal with when it comes to cybersecurity has an attack surface. Take, for example, a typical smart home. How many people do you think change their default router passwords, let alone keep them updated? Does the average homeowner know what Zigbee is and its potential flaws or even what it controls? What is listening to you or watching the perimeter? And where is that data being stored? I could go on and on about the attack surface of a smart home. So imagine the attack surface on far more complex systems spread across data centers and the cloud, supported not only by yourselves, but third parties as well. Bear in mind, your attack surface could be digital, physical, or based on social engineering. Also, you need to think outside the box when identifying your attack surface. For example, have you thought about your supply chain or your exposure to someone infiltrating your system through an external provider who has access to your systems and data? The review will give you the opportunity to reduce your attack surface, which will in itself be a whole other presentation. It will also help you firmly establish your detection and response capabilities. How so? You'll have a better idea of what risk areas should be monitored closely, which will in turn see your response plans being adjusted accordingly. So you've invested in people and you've scrutinized and reduced your attack surface. What else will help with your focus on detection and response? NIST defines zero trust as a cybersecurity paradigm focused on resource protection and the premise that trust is never granted implicitly, but must be continually evaluated. We're all prob probably familiar with the concept of zero trust architecture to some degree by now. It's certainly a factor in reducing your attack surface. However, on June 21 in 2022 in Sydney, Gartner unveiled the top eight cybersecurity predictions for 2022-2023. They said 60% of organizations will embrace zero trust as a starting point for security by 2025. More than half will fail to realize the benefits. So how does zero trust architecture help with breach detection? With a well-tuned zero trust architecture, you can have things like contextual trust algorithms, one of the benefits many will fail to realize according to Gartner. For example, someone from HR who on average accesses 25 employee records a day is now plowing through over 100 in a day. A contextual trust algorithm might send out an alert in that scenario. But if this was happening after hours, it could be an attacker exfiltrating records and the algorithm would pick that up too. Or someone from finance team who typically works business hours in the office 
is trying to get access to the system at 1am from an unknown location. A contextual trust algorithm might require the subject to jump through some more verification hoops while sending out an alert. Of course, putting together a set of criteria or threshold values for each resource requires planning and testing. But can you not see how zero trust architecture combined with contextual trust algorithms could enhance your detection capabilities? Looking to detect new behaviours over single events would certainly strengthen your security posture. It would also increase the speed of detection overall. When it comes down to it all, what you are trying to squeeze down is your mean time to detect and your mean time to respond. The Australian government has a notifiable data breaches scheme. Under the scheme, you have to notify affected individuals and the government when a data breach is likely to result in serious harm to an individual whose personal information is involved. I mention it because they keep some pretty good statistics on what they find. In their last report, the statistics that caught my eye was the time taken to identify breaches. It took 22% of the organisations that notified the government more than 30 days to identify a breach. 6% took over 365 days or didn't know how long the breach was in effect. 17% in total took longer than 61 days to identify breaches. One of their observations was, a notable proportion of the entities that experienced system faults did not become aware of the incident for over a year. Think about the potential damage that could be done over so much time. So, what you want to look at is reducing your mean time to detect and your mean time to respond. How can you do that? As mentioned before, people are key. There is a reason why security operations centres or SOCs are full of people along with the technology, but they need solid training. To illustrate, some time back I learned how to fly. I absolutely loved it. There was so much to learn from the dynamics of flying through to instrumentation instruction and communications with the tower. One way they drive the fundamental homes when learning to fly is repetition. They will make you do touch and goes on the runway for days before you're allowed to go any further. Another way is emergency drills. Whilst flying on a nice day, my instructor reached across, turned off the throttle and told me, it's an emergency, what do I do? My eyes immediately began to dart around for a landing location. In this instance, I spotted a field. I told him I was going to glide to that field and land there. He said, what about that road? I immediately told him no, because there were power lines and cars to deal with there. Also, at this stage, if I turned the wings of my plane to make it to the road, I would have lost lift and fallen short. And I would have failed his test for changing my mind at such a critical stage of the incident. The lesson? Repetition and drills can make reflect their reaction times so much faster and decisions so much more precise when it comes to responding to a security incident. Use training techniques that put your people in the middle of real scenarios with their hands on keyboards and maybe don't tell them it's coming like my instructor did. It's been 25 years since that lesson and I have never forgotten it. Add to that a review of your processes. There are things that can significantly slow a response down, like uncertainty about who is authorised to make a call on the type of responses or looking for who in the business is responsible for a particular system. 
There are also many other things to check for in a process that could also impact your response time. For example, does your organization have a position on paying ransoms, sharing information about incidents with trustworthy industry and government partners, arrangements with partners on the access and availability of logs? A presentation of this short magnitude, this podcast, doesn't allow me to go into too much detail on these areas, but the idea here is to get you to think about them and what you can improve on. In 539 BCE, Babylon fell overnight despite huge walls and defences. Their attackers were motivated and found a vulnerability that really could have been shut down with a detection and response strategy. As Bruce Shiner said, you can't defend you can't prevent, the only thing you can do is detect and respond. With the rise of the number of vulnerabilities and technology advancements, we just can't hide behind walls. We need to shore up our detection and response capabilities, and some of the ways we do that is by investing in people and their training. By looking at new ways of doing things like zero-trust architecture combined with contextual trust algorithms, by scrutinising and reducing our attack surfaces, and by reviewing and testing our incident processes and responses. As we discussed, future technology like quantum computing can be used as a battering ram to break down our walls, but it could also be part of the solutions we need in the future. So keep up to date with the advancements in technology. If we don't want to end up ruined, we really need to step up our detection and response capabilities. Once again, if you have any questions, reach out to us at cyberintel at vikingcloud.com and it could become a topic for a later episode. Thanks for listening.